Welcome to episode 193, Sibling Abuse, Risk Factors, Realities, and Consequences, featuring Dr. Amy Myers, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Iriez, and today I am looking forward to being joined by Dr. Amy Myers discussing a topic that we rarely discuss, which is the reality of sibling abuse. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Myers. We are grateful for having you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So why don't you take a moment, tell our listeners about you and about your background and how you came to zoom in specifically on education around sibling abuse? Okay. So uh, I'm a clinician, uh, have been practicing psychotherapy for 30 years and um, forayed into uh, academia uh, probably about 15 years ago. And so um, there's ample opportunity to teach people about sibling abuse and learn about sibling abuse once people understand that this is an area of expertise of mine um, because it really opens doors to people who have never considered that they have in fact experienced this um, and offering a safe place for people to be able to talk about it. Um, But I think that for me, um, certainly my impetus into developing an expertise in this, one is from personal experience uh, as a child and now as a survivor of sibling abuse. And I think you know, it was really interesting when I went to um, get my doctorate in um, social welfare, we had to work on a dissertation. And we were kind of forewarned that you better pick a topic that's going to hold your attention for a couple of years because you're going to delve deep and you're going to really um, have to stay committed to it. So I remember one professor referring to it as me-search. And it seemed that, you know, students in my cohort really chose topics of study that hit close to home. And although I never revealed the personal connection um, overtly, I obviously was aware of that. And so um, that was the beginning of my really um, embracing the experience to learn more about and kind of compare my situation to what, what others had experienced out there and make sense of it. I appreciate you coming on and, and talking about this because, as you mentioned before we started recording, we, even clinically, so often focus on the impact on someone from their caregivers, from parents, from even teachers or coaches. We don't often have the conversation about the other individual somebody lives with that may have a huge impact on their development. Um, and certainly our culture normalizes conflict between siblings because of terms like sibling rivalry. Why don't we start there, Amy, in just having you really break down what is, we'll say, typical sibling rivalry, and when does it stop falling in the category of Okay. Um, Well, sibling rivalry is normative. It's an aspect of development that 
actually serves us well because it helps us to develop skills of coping, uh, cooperation, negotiation, conflict resolution. And with sibling rivalry, there's usually a mutual opportunity for advantage and disadvantage. Meaning, if I were engaged in a, an argument with a sibling, um, during that argument, you know, I might have the power and control and it might shift to the sibling having power and control or in one argument, I have power and control and the next argument, my sibling has power and control. So it shifts and it's not out of control. It's um, argumentative. There's a discourse to it in terms of uh, how it plays out. And nobody is essentially deeply harmed by the interaction. In sibling abuse, there's an unequal opportunity for advantage or disadvantage. So in other words, one sibling carries the power and control in the relationship and um, renders the other child powerless. And um, so it doesn't shift and it's uh, intentional, right? There's intention to harm and um, the recipient of the abuse feels a sense of hopelessness, um, powerlessness and fear. I see. There are so many questions that I have as we lead into this conversation. One of them is also keeping in mind multi-sibling households. And whether we talk about it right now, I would like to talk about, you know, how does how does abuse in sibling relationships play out when there are three or more siblings involved? And does that often carry over to many siblings that are recipients of abuse and one abusive party? So that I'm, I'm making a note myself, like I want to ask you about that and come back to that. Um, if you want to address it now, absolutely. Otherwise, we can go for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so in the study that I conducted, I spoke with 19 survivors of sibling abuse, and it was an extensive qualitative study. So I really wasn't looking for prevalence and um, aspects that we can quantify. I wanted to get to the lived experience. And so um, just by the nature of the participants, the majority of the participants had one sibling who was abusive. There were participants with multiple children in the family. And what I found was that um, when there were, let's just start with three, when there were three children in the family, usually two children were being abused. Sometimes the second sibling was being incited by the abusive sibling to abuse the, the target. Um, in, in families where there were multiple children, oftentimes there were, there was a child in the system and the family system who served as the, I put this loosely in quotes, savior. Um, and because of the age differential, that sibling was often living outside of the home. Uh, and so there was opportunity for the target to seek refuge with that sibling. Mm, interesting. Okay. That leads me to my next question in terms of age. Can you speak a little bit about some of the patterns that we should be looking out for clinically, particular nuances in sibling relationships that are ripe for the possibility of abuse? Like, I mean, does it typically occur from an older sibling to a younger sibling? Does, does that hold? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So usually because an older sibling usually has more of the power within the family system, and we can talk about roles and or what contributes to the dynamics within a family that creates the existence of sibling abuse, but usually just because of the nature of hierarchy, where an older child may be given responsibility for the younger child, that puts them in the position of disciplinarian, and they don't know how to really maybe manage that kind of role. So yeah, I have found that it's usually older sibling to younger sibling, but I remember uh, meeting with a twin set and right so they're the same age and it was still being imparted by uh, the male to the female so i have found that um, most frequently it is male to female when there are only uh, female siblings within a family context it can still certainly happen and has occurred between sister to sister Uh, i found that the average age of onset was age six and it endured for an average of 12 years. Why 12 years? Because usually at that time, one of the children are leaving the home either for college or just it's time to move out. And so it, uh, it continued uh, until that point. And of course, there are situations where the abuse continues throughout adulthood. Um, but we can also, if you want, come back to that because there are siblings who cut you know, the, the, the abused sibling will cut off the abuser. And that's a way to um, stop the abuse from continuing into adulthood. Now the child who's an adult has free will, whereas when they're children, they didn't, they rely on the parent for protection. But towards the movement of self-preservation, the child no longer keeps in communication with with their sibling. But I will say this just as a, perhaps an aside or just a piece of information. It's... Um, quite interesting that the sibling relationship is the longest relationship we will have in our lifetime and um, the closest relationship, unless, of course, there becomes physical distance or death or emotional cutoffs. There are so many different angles we can take this conversation. I want, I'm imagining clinicians listening, and I want to go back to discernment between sibling rivalry and abuse. I know that I've absolutely been in the situation clinically where I'll be working with a teenager who comes in talking about family conflict, conflict with a sibling, someone like you who's specialized in this. What are some of the questions you ask to really discern? Because it's not uncommon for sibling rivalry to escalate to the point of physical aggression. Where is that line for you to where it goes from falling under the category of rivalry and transfers into abuse? Or is it basically all under the category of abuse because we're talking about someone using their power over another person to influence behavior? Yeah, that's kind of a complicated question because, I mean, you're talking about assessment, right? How do we um, determine that this is occurring and how do we work towards prevention and how do we work towards intervention? And um, the literature doesn't make it easy because, well, let me just back up a little bit because things have changed significantly. When I, I, I got my doctorate in 2010, so I believe I started working on my dissertation in 2005. And at that point, when I did an internet search for sibling abuse to see what was out there, where were the gaps in the literature around this? There was literally a 
handful of articles on the topic. I would do a search for child abuse, parent child abuse, and there were, I think at the time, three to four to 5,000 articles on the subject. So I was like, wow, that's wonderful for me because I found a gap and something that needs to be addressed. But what I did find, and so I, I, I had to move away from sibling abuse to, as you're saying, sibling rivalry, sibling aggression. And um, what was notable in the literature is that these terms were being used interchangeably from abuse to rivalry to aggression to assertion to um, bull peer bullying, right? It was all being used in, in the same vein. And what we're trying to do here, and I think, you know, one of the things you're asking me is how do we distinguish that and how do we detect for that? And so important. So one, I'm, I'm just proud to say that the contribution to the literature has gained a lot of steam since 2005 or 2010. And there's much more out there on sibling abuse. So if your listeners want to look that up, I have also published several articles on sibling abuse. Um, and one of the things that I did when I uh, be embarked on my study was to be very careful with how I was going to solicit participants. Because if I used the term abuse, like, have you ever been abused by your brother or sister? I thought, I'm probably not going to get many or any participants because there is no societal recognition of this phenomenon. And the field of child welfare to this day has not recognized sibling abuse as a separate entity uh, from parent-child abuse. Obviously, it falls under parental neglect because for a child to be abused in a family system, uh, the parents did, in fact, uh, not always willfully or intentionally, neglect the child's need for protection. So it's, in my mind, obvious that this would there would be statutes in child welfare to be able to assess for this. Um, the only thing that really comes to their attention is sibling incest. Um, but th it's really murky waters when it comes to physical and emotional sibling abuse. So there's a lot of reasons why this why I, this still remains under the radar. And I like your question because I feel as though clinicians and any mandated reporters who are in the position to make this assessment need tools to be able to ask the questions that need to be asked. So just going back to this idea of, you know, no, we don't want to start with asking, you know, has anyone in your family been abusive to anyone else? Or have you ever felt that your brother or sister has abused you? What does that even mean to people who are not familiar with this? What does that even look like, right? So we have to kind of pull back from that. And just like I did with my study and, and posting for outreach for participation, I had to think about other ways of phrasing the questions so that I would get people. So, have you ever felt ridiculed by your brother or sister? Have you ever felt teased? Have you ever been physically harmed? Have you ever been um, pushed or shoved or, right? And really kind of breaking down what does abuse look like and what does it mean? Um, so, that was very helpful in terms of getting participants. And it was really kind of interesting and delicate that at the time, in asking these questions and having them participate in this, the participants came to identify their experiences as abusive through the participation in the study, through the interview process. Um, and that was very kind of um, revelatory for them. Um, it was validating for them. But at some times it was traumatic because um, it's really upsetting to have that label or that word ascribed to your own personal experience. So, Going back concretely to your question about what kind of questions can be asked, I think if we broaden our 
curiosity, um, our assessment of parent-child relationships when we meet with uh, families or adults or children, whoever you're meeting with, right? Whoever your client is, we want to understand the nature and quality of the sibling relationship. Because if we accept and understand the impact of sibling relationships on our development, then we give meaning to, right? How that relationship may be the cause or the influence of what we're seeing in the behavior or presenting problem that we're seeing. So you may have a child who's presenting with peer issues or academic issues, right? Difficulty concentrating or um, disruptive issues, oppositional issues, issues that are calling out for help. And we know that when children are maltreated, they don't know how to get positive attention. So they seek out negative attention because any attention is better than no attention. So that's just one aspect. And, and we can really flesh this out more if you like, but just giving you the grand overview. So that's if you're working with a child and you're having a child brought to you for some kind of anxiety, depression, behavioral issues, and we're identifying the child that needs to be helped. Now, one of the interesting things as another side point, as you said earlier, this can go off in so many different directions. So it's hard to kind of stay streamlined. But one of the risk and protective factors I found in doing my study is taking the uh, abused or target child for therapy. So it's a risk factor because the child learns that they're the source of the problem, right? Unless they're um, perpetrator or aggressor. I'm, 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 I've been struggling with finding the best language to refer to the um, abusive sibling. Um and I'm trying to come to terms with using the term aggressor because they too have issues and we want to be careful of labeling them as all bad. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I'd like to bring to your audience is the idea that obviously for somebody to be aggressing, they're having some issues too, right? But a child who is the sole one being taken for therapy when they are the target, of course, it's potentially helpful and validating only if their therapist or clinician understands uh, what is happening to them, right? So that's one reason why awareness is so important. But as a, um, so as a, it, so it's that you can see why it's a risk and protective factor, right? Risk because I'm the problem, protective because, wow, somebody's actually supporting me, validating my experience, helping me with what I'm experiencing. Well, and I, I think you've already touched on it repeatedly, how much this phenomenon exists and is simply under acknowledged how many parents would never think to take the sibling who's been the target to therapy for that that there are all these other things that we would think oh the child you know could benefit from therapy this could be helpful for them and that would never even occur on their radar of oh it's it's really been difficult for my child to have the other child be so aggressive toward them or so demeaning or contemptuous or whatever it is. And I would imagine for parents, there's probably so much shame too about raising children that have so much animosity and wanting to keep that within the family system of like maintaining the secret around the thing that happens sometimes. Well, usually the impetus is that that targeted child is acting out, 
and is being difficult in the home. Because if you think about it, when does sibling abuse occur? Most of the time it occurs in that window when the children get home from school and before the parents get home from work. Um, so the, the children are home alone together. So by the time that that caregiver arrives home, that target is undone. And the aggressor may be quietly going about his or her business um, because they displaced their aggression onto the target. Um, they got got out what what they expelled whatever they were you know holding in, and the target was abused. So they're crying for help. And when that parent or caregiver comes home from work or wherever they were, and they are bombarded by um, their child, they don't understand what happened when they were absent, and they just find this child extremely difficult. But I do want to say also that oftentimes the abuse happens when the parent is at home, and the parent does not know how to manage the abuse of siblings. So there are occasions where actually the parents are being abused too by that sibling by that child. Um, and there are other times where they feel that, you know, the children should work it out between themselves or among themselves. So oftentimes the parents are either physically not present or emotionally not present. Thank you for breaking that down. And what I'm hearing is the potential for a child to be brought into therapy because they're quote unquote acting out. And then for clinicians to keep that in mind as a possible red flag of sibling abuse. Because so often if a child is acting out, we as clinicians go straight to like, oh, is there some kind of communication issue with the family? Is there any kind of abuse? Is there a learning issue that's contributing to acting out at school or at home or refusal to do homework? And again, I think I can only speak for myself. I don't know if I've ever directly assessed for sibling abuse as a risk factor when seeing a child that is having difficulty in the home. We assess for abuse, but we very rarely identify the sibling as being the possible aggressor. Okay, so let's come back to exploring the nature and quality of the sibling relationship and how do we do that as a clinician. So I'm sure either if you work privately or if you work, um, well, it depends, right? If I, I know when I work, used to do agency work, we had to do a biopsychosocial like in the first four weeks, right? And you're asking all those questions to understand the background and history of um, the individual or the family system. In private practice, I don't really do that. I let it unfold. But if something comes up that, you know, red flags me, certainly I will pursue that course of exploration. Either way, whether it comes up organically or you have to um, assess through a biopsychosocial or an intake manner, you want to assess for what was the relationship like between the parents, what is or was. Now, this gets really confusing, and so I want to I get reined in a little bit um, between whether you're working with a child or whether you're working with an adult, because one of the things that I did not say yet is that if you are working with an adult, you also should be informed about the risk and protector factors of sibling abuse and the long-term implications for that, because um, I've worked with adults who have intimacy issues, right? Lots of people come to therapy to talk about their interpersonal patterns or their interpersonal relationships, and 
sibling abuse results in a lot of difficulty in that area. So if we start to even ask our adult clients about the nature, quality, and history of their relationship with their sibling, we may scratch a surface that leads to uncover, right, some of the root of the the challenges in their current interpersonal relationships. So I'm, I'm again going off on, on another area and I want to come back to, let's just start with if you're working with a child and the types of questions that you would ask either of the child and or the caregiver who is bringing the child into treatment. Because um, I always say, you know, you can't just drop off your child and have me fix them, right? We have to, we, we need to understand the nature and quality of the parent-to-parent relationship. Um, a lot of times there's clues there about how the communication patterns are and how the relationships are between the parents and how that funnels down to create strain in the sibling relationship. Um, also, like the quality of the parental relationship in terms of how they met, um, what do they like to do together, how do they enjoy each other's company, and of course, with that comes or not, right? You know, where what's the quality of that relationship like? And the quality and history of the each parent's relationship with their sibling, because there is an intergenerational pattern of abuse, just like with parent-child abuse, there is with sibling abuse. Now, obviously, most parents don't have an understanding not only of that what is happening between their children is abuse, then they certainly don't have an understanding of their historical relationship with their sibling as abusive. But what was that like? So in doing that, the questions that you're going to be asking a, a parent about their relationship with their sibling growing up and currently, right, because a lot of folks have strained relationships with their sibling even in adulthood, right? And so I spoke with somebody recently who was concerned about the relationship between her children, and she was a, a an only child. So she doesn't have a model for how siblings are able supposed to relate what's healthy what's unhealthy and it was just kind of an interesting new way of thinking about right only children and not having a template and and maybe that's a good thing and maybe that's uh impairing in some way so what is that right what's the what's the intergenerational aspect of this um how do the parents like to spend time together how do the parents like to spend time with child a with child b with child c And through that, you may also see they don't spend any time together, or there might be some favoritism towards one particular child. And what are the best characteristics of child A, B, or C? So how are they framing, right, these children in regard to is there... um, a a smarter one? Is there a more enjoyable one? Is there one who may be neglected by the parents? Because this is setting the stage for hostility between children. Um, When one child is favored, uh, the other child often experiences that, is aware of that, and that can breed resentment. And since a child can't take out their anger or upset on the parent, who do they then displace it on? They displace it on to the one who is less powerful um, in that family system. Caregiving roles, really important, right? What roles does each child perform or have? You know, what is each child good at? What are their strengths? How come a parent speaks so much more highly about one child than another? And how does that play out in the family system? 
what role is the, are the roles assigned or were they innate? You know, well, Isabel was, you know, she was just always so good at, um, cleaning up without being told. Um, is that really positive? Yeah, it might be positive, but does that mean Isabel gets more of the responsibilities because she's just so more willing to please or eager to do or what's behind that? So you can see that the more that we uncover, and we know this, right, as clinicians, we know that um, there are roles in family and there are hierarchies in family. But again, start thinking about it in a way that may frame the nature and quality of a sibling relationship. And I would ask children, what do you like to do with your brother or your sister? What don't you like to do? What's their best quality? What's their worst quality? Um, when you argue, what happens? What starts an argument? And how does that argument play out? Do mommy or daddy or caregiver um, intervene? Uh, do they let you figure it out? Right. So there's lots of questions to be asked. And in one of my articles, which I can't identify at this moment, um, I speak to the types of questions that can be asked. And certainly on my podcast, I dedicate an episode to that, to um, a sibling abuse assessment. Mm. Thank you for setting the groundwork simply from the assessment about what we ought to be looking for clinically and also the things we need to keep in mind as contributing factors for potential sibling abuse. You had mentioned a parent not knowing how to intervene. Speaking right now about children living in the home, we'll say children under the age of 18 or perhaps you know, transitional age adulthood, how do parents appropriately navigate when one child is so clearly the aggressor toward the other child? It's a minefield. Speaking as as a parent of two children, um, they, you know, I knew I knew the day would come that it would be the he's looking at me, um, and I've hit that day. And so the difficulty of sharing space with this other little human in the family, vying for attention, vying for a spot. How how do we support parents in intervening when it's crossed the line between? normative, typical sibling rivalry and gone into an abusive place? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think that when a child is asking for help, then we should help. It's not at the point that you say, well, work it out yourselves. And, um, you know, he's looking at me is very different than he's hurting me. Okay, so it's up to us to make that distinction. And I know, you know, as parents, people might not be necessarily armed with where is that line. So it's really being attuned to your child, uh, children, and being observant of what's acceptable normative behavior and what's not. Um, if you, if if their arguing uh, has an end, right, and nobody is intentionally harming the other person, um, if they're aware of where the boundaries end, or they're, even if they're learning that, you can let that play out. Um, but observe. And if it gets too chronic, too consistent, too persistent, um, and you find that one of your children is always kind of seeking you out for support, then tend to that. And you also are making the decision whether you tend to that in the moment or whether that's a discussion that you need to have with your child um, when the fighting simmers down or both children separately, right? 
And, you know, of course, it's age dependent how you have that conversation, what it is you say, um, and, and just kind of know that abuse is usually clear. Um, even though we haven't had a language for it, we still know when somebody's being hurt or harmed. Is that it? It clear? does. It is. Thank you. And it sounds like really supporting the parents in feeling empowered to step in, to not mm-hmm. let them sort it out and to keep the target child safe. Mm-hmm. It can be confusing for a parent to know when and how to step in. And the other issue that comes up, you already mentioned it, is clinicians as mandated reporters. I personally have had to file a report before about sibling abuse. And again, when we think of our typical training around what triggers a mandated report, we're not always thinking about that. And in the case where you're looking at children in the same home, for example, where one child is abusive to the other, then the parents are are often, as you mentioned, uh, responsible for the neglect that may be facilitating the abusive environment. How do we keep that in mind, this kind of mandated reporter piece? Do you recommend clinicians say, hey, this has crossed the line into abuse, and if this continues, I, I need to report this to the authorities? And we need to get different wraparound supports for your family because this status quo cannot. Is that how you would do it for someone who who has seen this play out real time and your ears are kind of perked up to hear these risk factors? Um, I, I think that this is complicated because of the child welfare system and how faulty it is. Um, I certainly know of numerous cases with parent-child abuse that it's very clear-cut that this is what's happening. And, you know, child welfare can go in and make their assessment. And at times it can put a child at greater risk because now the parent is really angry. Um, when So when it's unfounded by child welfare, in a sense, you're giving permission for the parent to continue to do what they do, right? Um, In regard to sibling abuse, uh, I only know of child welfare intervening when it's been incest. So I'm curious if I can just pivot back to you for a second. Was that a case of physical uh, and or emotional abuse that you reported? Physical. It was physical Mm -hmm. abuse. And what was the outcome? Um, You know, I can't speak to the outcome on that one because I had a shorter term relationship with the sibling. So I Mm -hmm. was in an environment at a level of care where Mm -hmm. I was only seeing the child for an explicit amount of time during that treatment episode. So I Mm -hmm. actually don't know what came of it during the time that I was seeing that child and it came out that this has happened in the past and, oh, here are the scars or whatever was being discussed that when I called and reported it to the Department of Child and Family Services, as you mentioned, management of those kind of things takes so long, not to mention that my client was in a controlled environment at that point and wasn't living at home. So whatever was going on at home, I don't know about because a child was in residential treatment. And I don't know what the intervention was with the family or the response. Right. Um, You know, I I just, I fear that uh, reports that are being made and are being neglected uh, by the system 
um, you know, leads to really negative outcomes um, because you're, again, implicitly giving the parents the message that what's happening is okay. So, um, you know, to me, if anything, this is a call for advocacy and policy development. Um, I think that we really need to work on our um, child welfare system and get some policies going, laws and statutes that protect children within the home from all kinds of abuse. So this is um, a real deficit and I don't have the answer for it. I would just say that, you know, myself working privately, um, historically my angle has been that if there is workability, I'm going to do my best to work with the parents, right? So I'm trying to appeal to them and uh, acknowledge how difficult difficult parenting is and how nobody is intending for children to be harmed, but they are in fact being harmed. And so now that we recognize this and we're giving a name to it, um, I need your commitment, right? And so that's on me. I mean, that's a bit, it's not something I would recommend to uh, beginners or even seasoned professionals. That's a very personal uh, distinction. Do you want to take that risk? Because you're taking a risk. I mean, if I know that the child is really, really being harmed with the potential um to impact their development and their psyche and their physical state, of course, I'm going to report it. And it's on the child welfare system. Um, but the child welfare system is not an end all, unfortunately. So I don't, I don't have the answer to that. Thank you. I, I appreciate you talking a bit more about it. Can you tell us more about the risk factors for a child becoming an aggressor? So you mentioned the quality and nature of the relationship and caregivers, mm -hmm. which makes me jump to the assumption that if there is, say, a lot of contempt, if there is intimate partner violence that the child is observing, that that's a risk factor. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm assuming other illnesses contributing, mm -hmm. whether it's a mental illness or a medical illness, for example, the child has sleep disorder, which contributes to um, irritability and aggression, for example, because they're not sleeping well. What are some of the other risk factors that make the perfect storm for someone to become a sibling abuser? Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are a lot of factors similar to um, victimization or you know, perpetration of parent-child abuse. There's a lot of similarities. Uh, in my study, I found that in more than half of the homes where sibling abuse occurred, there was parent-child abuse. So, in fact, it is a displacement, right, of aggression. Um, as I said before, or, or alluded to, uh, favoritism within the home breeds resentment. Uh, being in the position of caregiver breeds resentment and hostility towards um, the sibling that is being cared for. Um, as you said, you know, obviously mental illness um, from severe mental, severely severe persistent mental illness to just aspects of depression. Um, um, somebody who is being bullied in school um, is again, prone to displace that aggression. Um, so I'm hearing about this in my study through the uh, survivors, right? And what is needed and what I hope to do in the not too near future is to identify aggressors and really explore what was go what they thought was going on with them at the time of abuse, 
right? So retrospectively, um, because I think that we need more information about this. But I also found like the family factors that, or the family environment uh, and, and what the parents bring into the situation. So a lot of times in single parent households, um, this is prevalent and, and it crosses all classes, by the way. It doesn't discriminate based on class or gender. Um, but single parent status t- seems to be a risk factor um, because obviously there's stress in the home environment uh, or greater stress. Um, there's financial stress at times. And even in a dual family, dual parent family, there's financial stress um, that is brought into the home. And it just creates um, an environment where the caregiver is not as attuned to their children's emotional lives because they're consumed with their own uh, burdens. So really looking at a family under stress, always being a potential risk factor. I think that's a good point. Yeah. And it's considering it as a um, symptom of the entire family system. I, I like that way of looking at it. It's, it's a symptom and that unhealth can then bleed it into other dyads. You've spoken a little bit about it so far in terms of how experiencing sibling abuse may affect somebody through development and maturation. Can you speak more about that? What are the repercussions of experiencing sibling abuse? Uh, sure. My my study focused specifically on the development of intimate relationships. And so, um, um, but I think that it can be brought into interpersonal, right, really, because first and foremost is the issue of trust that has been broken by our most revered peer, our sibling. Um, and then it's a double whammy because not only did your uh, most trusted peer betray you, with that trust, but your parent or caregiver, um, by not protecting you, right, also betrayed your sense of trust. Trust in the idea that you are worthy and worthwhile of being protected. So that affects self-esteem. That uh, you know affects your ego. Um, trust that um, folks can be supportive. Um, trust that somebody has your best interest at heart. Trust that um, you can share your personal experiences and personal feelings and have them held and tended to. Trust that uh, you can have an opinion or that your perspective will be um, validated and again and heard. So basically, I mean, in, in regard to trust, it's really like your whole sense of self has been impacted in regard to your worthiness. And obviously, that's going to prey on your ability to establish um, meaningful interpersonal connections. And, you know, one of our, of our, our basic motivations in life is to feel connected to other people. Um, so when that has been betrayed or preyed upon, um, you don't see the world as a safe place. And um, so it also kind of preys on your ability um, to, to be um, dependent. And I know that a lot of uh, folks in our culture, in our society, have grown up with the sense, whether you've been abused or not, with the sense that uh, being dependent is like it's a terrible thing. Um, needing other people is this terrible thing. But we need to depend and we need to need in order to be self-sufficient. 
Um, it's kind of the precursor to that. It's like we need to be soothed in order for us to be to be able to self-soothe, to modulate our own emotions. We have had to have been tended to. So when we don't have those experiences, we um, become really primed to do everything ourselves to, to be sure that we are going to never need anybody again um, because we've been so disappointed in that area. Um, and so how do you develop intimacy when, you know, part of intimacy is the ability to be interdependent? I'm imagining an adult in session that has recurrent concerns surface in significant relationships. And as clinicians, sometimes we like grab our magnifying glass and we're like, where did this come from? Um, and again, that could potentially be an easy one to miss to say what were the important relationships in your life that showed you it wasn't safe or that it was uh, actively damaging. I appreciate the angle that you're presenting, which is keeping in mind this other whole element of development that we really can often overlook as part of someone's worldview and their well-being. Yeah, I feel like it's incumbent on us as clinicians to go beyond, you know, where where in your past may this right have developed uh, with whom is to say to to explore the sibling because most people don't have that in their construct to consider the impact of the sibling relationship on development. Absolutely. Um, do sibling abusive relationships follow any patterns similar to intimate partner violence? Like, do we commonly see the quote unquote cycle of violence, for example, where there could be that building of tension and then an incident and the honeymooning? What did you see in the interviews you did or in the research that you've done? Are there similarities? That's really interesting. Um, you know, I've never given thought to that before. And I have to say that um, given what I know about intimate partner violence and what you're highlighting, right, is the the, the phases and the periods and the um, ebb and flows that with sibling abuse, um, most of the time survivors cannot identify what causes the onset, right? So it puts them in a chronic state of hypervigilance which is actually another long-term outcome, right? Is like being extremely, it's like part of complex trauma, being extremely aware of your surroundings, your environment and the people in it, and kind of always waiting for the next shoe to drop. So oftentimes that leads to people pleasing. Um, if I can anticipate your needs, right, then maybe you, I don't have to experience your upset or your anger with me, and I can offset the potential of that happening. The problem is um, when somebody is living in a home where it's so unpredictable, there there is no ability to offset it because you can't predict what creates it. So I don't know if there's a cycle as much as an unpredictability um, and a desire certainly to figure it out. That's really interesting. That's, that's interesting that that's one of the themes that you've noticed. My brain goes to the studies about learned helplessness, hearing that, that if we can't influence or if we can't understand where it even came from, eventually we stop trying. And I wanna jump back to something you had mentioned earlier. You had talked about sibling incest in your work looking at sibling abuse, we've primarily been talking about verbal abuse, physical abuse, not including sex abuse. Do you consider sibling incest as falling under the umbrella of sibling abuse? 
in terms oh, of people seeking education or does it fall into its own category um, because it, it is um, there are similarities, but there are also huge differences? Um, I think it belongs in its own category and, and under the umbrella. And the reason that I don't focus on that as much is because when I did embark on the study, uh, well, a couple of reasons, uh, there was much more literature on sibling incest. And I guess because it's so obvious and apparent. And um, again, you know, there are statutes to protect children from that. Um, so there was stuff out there. And and hence the reason you're hearing me not talk about it as much is because my focus was on physical and emotional sibling abuse. And I also, that was my experience, um, not sibling incest. And so I wanted to learn more about that. You may not have an answer to this because it wasn't something that you were looking for. Did you find that there was an indication of a higher risk of sibling abuse when there was presence of sibling incest? Well, I screened out for sibling incest, so I can't speak to that. Yeah. Um, when a clinician has reason to believe that there is sibling abuse actively occurring, I'm going to say in a child or young adult. So I'm going to start with the question one and then do follow a question two. What's the kind of perfect storm for a clinician of what we're going to do with that information? I mean, obviously, if we are a mandated reporter and we need to report it, then we'll do that. But beyond that, what are the interventions that we can be using to support this child or young adult or the family system at large? Um, one is that the family system should be, its again, as a symptom of the family system. So I think that there should be a family approach to treatment. But then I also think that there should be dyads. I mean, and this is in a perfect world. You said perfect storm. This is in a perfect world where everybody has time for five therapy sessions a week, right? Because you want to see the family system. You want to see the parental system, if there is one. Um, you want to see the sibling uh, victim and you want to see the sibling aggressor. I mean, everybody needs intervention. If you can only do, you know, if, if the family does not have that kind of time or resources, I would start with the family system. And what's really important also is to ensure what's happening outside of that family session. So there always needs to be uh, an observer or protector when the children are home alone. So in other words, the children should not be home alone together until this is um, addressed properly, until the family develops coping skills in order to uh, enhance that relationship. So, um, you know, your duty, in a sense, to protect the child is to uh, develop a plan whereby a child won't be home with the aggressor. So whether that means, um, you know, a babysitter, again, you know, this comes to resources, right? But an after-school activity, um, what programs are available at the school? What programs are available in the community? Are there friends that the child, a child, or both children can stay with separately? right? Um, maybe one child is, is perfectly okay to stay in the home alone um, if they're of age and, and able to, to manage that way. But, um, you know, without financial resources, there still are resources. There, there can be a library program, um, you know, after-school programs or after-school sports or activities. I know students, uh, uh, sorry, participants have told me that they have been involved in things where there is some opportunity for mentorship, um, which really help to give them a sense of worth and also expel their own upset. And there was somebody who was in the, the music club, right? And just kind of playing the instrument helped to, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a defense mechanism that 
sublimate, sublimate, right? Sublimate um, their aggression or their upset depends on who it is. So um, that's the first step. And then it's about um, understanding the strife in the family that is creating this. So if we, again, start with exploration of hierarchy, how is that um, played out within the family system? Favoritism, and again, learning the questions, not just asking is somebody favored in the family, but what do you like to do with child A? What do you like to do with child B? You know, what does family time look like? How do you spend your time? time together separately, right? What you're assessing for is, does this family enjoy each other at all? And so if so, how can you capitalize on those, you know, maybe minute points of enjoyment? How can you develop potential enjoyment? As you're talking about this, I remember reading one thing that stood out to me when I was looking into sibling dynamics and family dynamics years ago when personality types were studied, like we were often quick to say, oh, you know, she's just like her mom in that she blah, blah, blah. And when they were looking at personality similarities between siblings, the study I was reading said that siblings were no more likely to share personality traits or interests than strangers. And I remember thinking about that fact where it's like, imagine that, like imagine just being put in a room or in a home with someone you have potentially nothing in common with, very different personality type interests, and you're just expected to get along with them. And just appreciating how complicated these uh, relationships are, as you said, like, what do you enjoy doing together is a capacity that you don't enjoy doing anything together, we're really different. Well, maybe that's why there's a saying, um, you know, we, we don't choose our family, we choose our friends, or we, we choose our friend family. Many people look for that outside of the family environment. But I do believe that we have the ability to cultivate positive relationships within a family system. And yes, you know, I understand that analogy, which is true in some instances, right? Like what do, is there, there may be siblings that are so inherently different that they don't have much in common or they don't, their, their personality characteristics or traits just don't mesh. But I do think that we can cultivate, um, a, 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 you know, maybe you don't have to like the person, but you can certainly live with them. Absolutely. Um, and it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about the adaptiveness that could come from sibling relationships. How often are we in workplaces? How often are we in line at the grocery store with somebody that we don't have anything in common with, and yet we still need to share our space on this rock? I think that's a really good point. Um, my next question for you, what do you do clinically, going back to that question of kind of part two, when you uncover sibling abuse in an adult and then there's question A and question B. Question A is when this person still has an active relationship with that sibling. And then question B is when they don't. Like, what are your interventions that you reach for when there is active adult sibling abuse occurring that's now presented itself? So not just historically, but presently? Um, either or. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is like a four-point yeah, question. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, so uh, let's, let's go with historically. Um, so usually it's uncovered, again, not, not from the client. It's usually uncovered because I have asked questions and have um, helped the client understand that what they had experienced was in fact abusive. 
And that period of time can be really difficult um, because it means accepting, you know, perhaps uh, the perception of a perfect family or a, a really healthy family, even though so, uh, somewhere in their makeup, they knew that something wasn't right and didn't feel right. But to actually acknowledge that and have that acknowledged by a professional, it's often extremely unsettling. Um, whereas others find it extremely validating. So it's kind of working through um, the new presentation of a trauma and educating uh, a bit about, you know, providing psychoinformation, psychoeducation about um, what that means and the potential outcomes. And that what is so validating about it is that um, we can now move to that client understanding or validating their own perception of things. And I think that that's what's so um, emotionally corrective is to have somebody, the clinician, actually treat them like a human being, treat them like an equal, and trying to kind of work on the hierarchy of the uh, clinician-client relationship because a lot comes out in the transference. And I think it's about helping these adults believe in their own ability to make decisions and make choices that they can trust. So it's about building ego. It's about building trust, trust of other people, which happens through the therapeutic relationship, but also trust in themselves. And I think that's kind of probably work that we do with a lot of our client population, but um, it's kind of the crux of the work with the survivor of sibling abuse. Now, in terms of there being continued conflict for the adult client with their sibling relationship, um, I think it's about helping them work out what kind of a relationship they want to continue to have. I am all for self-preservation, and if that means cutting off the sibling, I will support that. I don't know if I necessarily suggest that, um, but it's kind of helping the client come to a decision about what they can live with and what is going to serve them better because oftentimes they're still in the framework of making other people happy. And part of that is um, it's a foreign concept to think that they actually can remove themselves from a relationship that is not serving them, not only not serving them, but is continued to be abusive. So it's it's hard to kind of answer that question in a really kind of succinct way because it's so dependent on what the client is presenting and where they are in their lives, in their insight, right, in their in their goals. Um, oftentimes, I mean, they're not coming into treatment because this is um, stressing them out. It, it's often kind of right um, come to. It's so powerful too what you mentioned the time needed to process oh a professional just used those words yeah and i know i've experienced that countless times in therapy where you know a, a client is describing some situation or event and then we spit out the word the word mm -hmm. that they haven't either even considered or they mm -hmm. may have actively gone it's definitely not that there's no way that it's mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. And just then the word lands <laughs> between us and then you're like, and just that is an adjustment because as you said, we don't talk enough about sibling abuse. And so because we don't talk about it, we don't look for it. We don't recognize it. 
for an adult, they could have been experiencing this for dozens of years. And then suddenly a clinician comes along that goes, this sounds traumatic and abusive. Yeah. And that's actually really scary, frightening, and threatening. So you have to be careful with it because uh, a client can leave treatment once you've made this identification, whereas we think that it could be validating and should be validating and um, hopefully repair reparative. Um, it may also be so scary because if we think about attachment and um, how important one's uh, family of origin is to somebody, especially somebody who's having interpersonal issues and doesn't connect easily and doesn't develop necessarily healthy attachments um, readily, then this abusive family is all they have. And we know this from cases of parent-child abuse, where no matter how abusive a parent can be, that child still wants to be with their parent, right? So the idea that um, we are giving um, credence to their experience and thinking that that's going to feel really good, um, it's also implying that they may need to separate from those members. And, um, you know, that, as I said, I, at the risk of sounding repetitive, is extremely scary and threatening. As you were talking during this interview, there have been a number of times that both you and I have said, you know, oh, and there's this over here and there's that over there. There's so many different elements of this to consider. And it's something that you've specialized in. For folks who are listening that want to learn more about the phenomenon of sibling abuse and then how to work with it clinically, what are the best resources? Um, well, you know, I know we didn't get to finish uh, your multi-pronged question <laughs> yeah. about um, what about the child, right? Seeing the child in therapy and, you know, what, I don't know if it was what to look for or what were the potential outcomes of that. Well, we didn't get to that. So as you're saying, there's so much to address and not enough time here uh, in this moment. So what can people do? Um, go to therapy, right? And I don't know if your, your audience is already therapists, but, uh, you know, it, it, it implore people to um, stick with it. Uh, it's hard work, but there's um, obviously rewards at the end um, because you got to work through the trauma in order to get past it. Um, there's uh, an increased amount of literature number of, of um, readings available on it. Uh, I would recommend actually the first and foremost researcher in this uh, area was Vernon Wehe. He spelled his name W-I-E-H-E. And he has um, a, a, a book called Sibling Abuse Trauma. Um, and I think that it's just enlightening to anybody who wants a starting point. As I said, I have several articles out on it. My last name is M-E-Y-E-R-S and it's Amy. And um, there's several articles that you can access on Google or Google Scholar. Um, there's another um, um, researcher, author, and clinician that I admire named John Caffaro, C-A-F-F-A-R-O. He has uh, a book out called Sibling Abuse Trauma, and he also focuses on sibling abuse, uh, sibling incest. So that's a resource for that. You know, there's a lot of symposiums and um, 
conferences that now focus on child welfare and are incorporating sibling abuse into it. There's an organization um, that I am now a board member on called SARA, S-A-A-R-A, out of the University of New Hampshire. They are building their resources on sibling abuse, aggression, research, and advocacy. That's what SARA stands for. And um, they have a website where they are housing uh, resources. I also have a podcast called What Would Dr. Meyer? do, and there's a series on sibling abuse dedicated to understanding um, how to detect, how to assess, how to uh, prevent, how to explore and ask questions, uh, how to understand the risk and protective factors, uh, understanding the long-term outcomes and repercussions, and I'm now moving into hearing um, from survivors and having them tell their stories, which I think will allow us to glean uh, even more um, in ways that are just implicit and that we can um, grapple with the challenges of working with this population. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to provide those resources. Absolutely. Thank you again for coming on and, and joining us and talking about this. There are so many elements to consider, and I would assume that you'll agree that this is probably the kind of thing that is occurring much more often than we think. Yeah, you know, one study way back when said it's the most common form of family violence, and yet the, the, the one that remains most under the radar. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Myers. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.